So uh, today we're going to talk about recognizing Jesus in another form. Amen. Recognizing Jesus in another form. Uh, last Sunday we spoke about the um, of constraining the Lord to continue with us. There is a place where Jesus has to be reinvited into our situations. He's he's a sovereign God. But there is a covenant that we have that uh, compels us, if we want God's help, to ask. And uh, I know many, many times we get so accustomed to God, it seems like he really just shows up and, and does things for us. Or we pray for a long period of time and nothing happens. And so we have this confusion sometimes as to how to get God on the scene, how to get his power, you know, involved in our situation. And so uh, it's, it's good for us to understand how, how um, revelation developed, how God interacts with us, what are the rules, and how do we get him to do the things that we need him to do in life. Of course, these things come to us by faith. You have to believe. God and you have to believe in him you have to put your confidence and your trust you have to take it out of you and put it in him so that that already uh, implies some kind of transfer some kind of change in the way you see things in the way you operate uh, it requires a change and even in the way you see yourself as sinners we see ourselves as the center of everything when you belong to the Lord, he becomes the center of everything. He is the central figure uh, in our lives. And I think if we keep it that way, it's great. But there are times where, you know, you're concerned about you. And things happen. Uh, some people uh, live a life of self-absorption rather than concern. And, some, and these people love God. But they can't quite get it together to put self aside long enough to allow God to really manifest in their lives. And so there are certain things that, that we need to understand about relationship with God that we uh, can draw from and understand that if you get to a point where your knowledge of God is lacking some way, it's just not cutting it, it's not getting to what you need it's not fixing the situation there is a place where you can hold on to Jesus and put a demand on his ability to deliver you and to move you into a different realm yeah I mean there's a persistence involved in faith there's a um, an adamance about your faith when you're standing on the word there's a place where you just refuse to budge until he blesses you, until he comes through with what you need. And we find this even in, in Jesus after he's resurrected. So I'm going to go back to our scripture in Luke 24 from last week. And uh, we're talking about the two men that met him on the road to Emmaus. We know it's just outside of Jerusalem. It's like a suburb of Jerusalem in our modern-day language. And so these two men are very, very discouraged and very upset because their understanding of who Jesus is is not true. 
when you are upset and discouraged, you're believing something that's not true. There's something, you know, out of kilter. Uh, you're stifling your faith and you're stifling the fruit of the Spirit. You're not allowing uh, your spirit to be regenerated and, and uh, quickened and made alive to meet the, the situation that you're in. You know, if you're in a situation, God has given you everything you need to meet that situation. You don't have to fast for 20 days and wait for God to give you something. It's in you already. What happens is that we allow the affairs of this life. You know, the Bible talks about the different soils that the seed of the word is uh, is planted in. And one of the soils was was one where the, the, the soil is always the heart. Your heart can get hardened or your heart can be softened depending upon the decision you make toward your circumstances. And he talks about those who are, are uh, I think it was the, um, uh, the seed that fell by the wayside. And the, the affairs of this life choked the word out and it was unfruitful. And you can have word in your head and no scriptures and all this, but if you let what you're facing right now in your life dominate, it will choke out the revelation of the word that you already have. You won't even operate in it. You'll act like you don't even know God because that, that thing that you're facing becomes so consuming and overwhelming. And so you don't want that to happen. You can walk in the revelation and knowledge and understanding of the word at all times. But that's the condition these people were in. In fact, that was the mood all around Jerusalem. It had gone from Jerusalem to seven miles outside of the city. <laughs> Everybody who knew the Lord was depressed. All of the people, the faithful Jews who were waiting for the kingdom that he had uh, spoken of so many times, they were waiting for that. In their own minds, they had their understanding of what that kingdom would be. Just like in our own minds, we have an understanding of what life is going to be. You know, I, you know when I, uh, I was first married, I thought, boy, everything's going to be hunky-dory. I made all kinds of plans, and, and over and over again, those plans never worked out because I didn't have the Lord and I didn't have his plan, you know. So when I got smart and let my plan go, after I received Christ, things got better, amen, because <laughs> there was in the right plan. And so there are many times we can have something in our mind that's going to happen. It never materializes because we didn't get it from God and there was no truth to it. And so these things have to, you have to have a revelation of Christ. You really do. And that's what these men lack. So they go along uh, walking uh, on the road uh, uh, to Emmaus, and, and it says in verse, uh, let me see, uh, verse, verse 17, he asked them, what are you discussing together as you're walking along? This is Jesus who's come up beside them, but they don't know him. They don't recognize him. They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleophas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know these things? I mean, uh, don't you watch the news? Don't you know what's going on? I mean, how can you ask what's going on? Well, Jesus will know what's going on, but he's going to ask you anyway. Now, why would he do that? If he knows it already, why ask you? 
Well, he needs your confession in order to help you. Other than that, he could just mind read everybody and solve all of our problems. He's had to pay for your cooperation in doing so. You know, I know a lot of times we wish our problems would go away and work. We could wake up and everything would be hunky-dory. But that's not how life goes. You have to confront things. You have to know what you're dealing with. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You have, as distasteful as it may be to us, we have to know. Why? So that we can learn. And we can learn how to overcome these obstacles because, after all, it is our life, right? And so he says, what things? He said about Jesus of Nazareth. So now we have an opportunity to have a dialogue with God. So imagine you being in trouble somewhere in your life. And this is your opportunity to have dialogue with God. You'll have to tell him what it is that's on your mind. God, I'm really upset about this. I don't know what to do about this. If you can help me with this, you know. And so he enters into conversation with them. This is communion. He was prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. Now these are historical facts about Jesus. This is why the Muslim will come up to you and tell you, I know about more about him than you do. Well, let me tell you one thing you don't know. <laughs> if I may be so bold, you know what I'm saying? And so this historical knowledge of Jesus will not get you saved. You have to have a revelation of the resurrected living Christ. You have to believe that God has raised him from the dead. And that's what these men lack. It says, and what's more, it's the third day since all this took place in addition some of our women are see how historical knowledge will not save you these guys are telling facts as facts and not mixing them with faith it's reading off facts reading off facts this is why the jehovah's witnesses don't get saved because to them the bible is just a bunch of facts to be repeated to somebody and there's no submission to god in it no revelation of the holy spirit you know, it's a precise work that God has to work in us to get us saved. And so these guys have facts, but they're missing something. And he said to them, they said they came and told us that he, he they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but they didn't see Jesus. So that's what their salvation is hinging on. They want to see got me there's something that everybody's answer to their prayer is hinging on and jesus will have to reveal that to us and correct that with his word so that we can receive what we need from him there's a roadblock in us for every answer to prayer it's just the truth of it something in us that's blocking it it's like these men they were sitting there and they were saying, if they didn't see Jesus, you know, they didn't see him, we got to see him. That's what they're saying in essence. Unless we see, we will not believe. Got me? There's tons of them people running around. That's why Jesus walked the earth for 40 days after he was, or 50 days, I'm sorry, after he was raised from the dead, revealing himself. These weren't the only people he came to. He came to everybody pretty much who could not believe without seeing he let them see so that they could believe 
And he said to them, how foolish you are and slow to believe. Slow to believe. You can believe, but you're dragging your feet in it for some reason. You can believe you need to pep it up. If you're quick to believe, you can do great things in God. Don't be the slow to believe person. Don't don't want to be to the exception to every rule. Try and be just, you know, a little average pea in a pod. <laughs> and then let your let yourself be quick to believe what's been told you about the Lord. And he said, Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? So he's questioning them. That now don't you remember you were told all these things would happen to him before he entered into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he re-explains to them, he brings them up to speed on what they don't know. Now this is what the scripture means when he says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. We all need learning. We've all got to learn these things. I don't know where people get the idea. You know how that thought comes to you when I've been saved so and so and such and you start feeling important because you've been saved a lot of years. Instead of being more humbled, you know, you could as easily say, I've been saved 20, 25 years and I've done very little for God. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, uh, all those years don't mean anything. What means something is your longevity in God. And what mean really means something is our where are you at now with him? Because the Bible says those who endure to the end. Well, this is an endurance run. That you stay faithful to God, not that you you can count the years that you confess Christ, but that you stay faithful to that. Amen. That you still speak highly of Him, you're still excited about the things that He does for you. You still crave to be with the Lord. You're still wanting Him to use you in ministry and in life and all those things. You want Him to make changes in you so you can be more like Him. All of that stuff, it's the quality of your relationship that you have to hang on to throughout the years, not just counting numbers of years that you made a confession. And he said, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which we were going, Jesus continued on if he were And So this is where we split up, guys. He gives you enough to digest, and after you've digested that, if you walk away satisfied, that's all you're going to know. Those guys could have walked off blind to who Jesus really was. That, that whole conversation would have done them no good if they had not been, what, quicker to believe. So when God points out a hindrance to your faith to you, you need to immediately correct that so that he can bring you what you need in your life. Don't be slow to make this change. Don't drag your feet trying to make it like it's such a chore. God wants to reverse these situations in our lives very quickly if we'll let him work. I mean, so fast your head will swim. swim. What does that mean to you? See, we say that every day, but then yet we drag our feet when it's time to believe something and make the appropriate change in our thinking, 
and in our believing and ask God to help us to get over this problem because you need to get over it so you can get over into where God is in the foot. And so the thing that they did that was right, they constrained him or they prevented him from departing from them. Something about him caught enough of their attention that they wanted to continue with him. The Bible says, agree with your adversary quickly while you are in the way with him, lest he will take you to the judge and, and, you know, and, and prosecute you to the fullest extent of the law. So they start out as adversaries. Jesus said some things to them that weren't kind. You know, the way that they that the people lived back in, in those days is that you could set out on a journey and as you walked on the road where you were going, you would if you were alone that was a bad thing. You looked for people who would accompany you on your journey. When you would meet someone, you would introduce yourself to them or if there were two people and there was a conversation going on like Jesus did you would get into agreement Jesus doesn't do that he challenges them that's a no-no for somebody who is on alone on the road traveling by themselves because those people will leave you right there they don't want trouble so even though you can start out as adversaries when you meet eventually you make peace so that you can walk ahead because if you walk by yourself thieves and robbers travel on if wayfarers travel on the road they rob people and kill them like the samaritan remember the man that was beaten up and robbed and the samaritan uh, went across the street and helped him this is what happens to lone travelers but jesus is a lone traveler and he doesn't come into agreement with their discouragement their doubt anything he challenges them right away rebukes them slow to believe foolish you don't do that to somebody when you're traveling alone unless you know who you are and what you're doing and so jesus breaks many rules of their good common sense on this road and that's what's going to happen to us when we walk with him he's going to make break many of your so-called common sense rules that you've made up for how God's going to bless you, how it's going to be <laughs> when, you, when your ship comes in. Amen. And what's that? God don't want me to do this. And he wouldn't do that to me. Oh, yes, he would. Amen. Jesus comes right up and gets involved in contending with them. He's not afraid for his own safety. He can walk by himself. But they don't know that. So they, as, as, as they walk, even though Jesus has rebuked them, corrected them, he opens up the scriptures to them, and they find peace with him and constrain him to stay. We want to make friends with you. We enjoy walking with you. It's the night. We all need to turn in and have a good night's sleep. Let's have a bite to eat before we turn in, and they wind up being friends. That's the best decision you can make. When Jesus corrects you, and gets the pride off of you and gets your foolishness and your ignorance out of you and make friends with him. Amen. Constrain him to stay with you. Don't get embarrassed about what you don't know and then hide from him the next time you're in trouble.
make him your best friend. I don't care who's against you, who's for you, what man can do for you, and what man can't do for you. You make Jesus your best friend and keep him by your side. So they beg him to stay with him. When they approached the village, they urged him strongly. Verse 29, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Then their eyes were opened at the breaking of bread, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Once you get a revelation of God, he leaves you with the revelation. You got me? If you need to understand why it is that you keep attempting to do something and you keep missing it, you keep failing at it, you keep, it never works out for you, Jesus will meet you in the breaking of bread at the communion table. If you need to understand why it is that I, I keep having this sickness in my body and it never goes away. It just, you know, just it keeps nagging at me. I can't get this thing totally eradicated. He will meet you at the communion table and give you revelation of himself as your healer, as your deliverer, as the one that you can rely on, as your wisdom, as your understanding of whatever it is. He meets you at communion. Now, I know we all have different ideas about communion, different denominations do different things, but I'm telling you the fact that these men's eyes were opened that the breaking of bread is very significant for the sacrament that we call communion. That is the place where you can get a revelation of the resurrected Christ, the reason that many people don't take part, partake of communion they do it legalistically. It's, oh, first, first Sunday of every month we have communion. Then uh, uh, some people don't take it because they're mad at somebody. Then some people say, well, let me go up and hug sister so-and-so because I was mad. You know, if we do that, you'd be in church all night going hugging people that you've been mad at. So there's a lot of misunderstanding about why is this important. Why is it? that the last thing Jesus did before he died was break bread with his disciples. The, the, when the 12 of them were gathered together, the last thing they had was what we call the Last Supper or Communion. Then again, over here, these men who don't understand that he's been raised from the dead, he told them everything about he, they He told them the history of the whole nation of Israel, and they still were darkened in their understanding. Why is it? Why is it that we can know so much about God and not have information to operate in to make our lives run well? That we can pursue and pursue and pursue knowledge and get a lot of facts about things and this and that, and it just seems to go so slow sometimes, us making progress in the things of God. And I believe it's because we don't have the proper revelation about Christ and what he can do for us and what the communion table is all about. You got me? 
So we're going to talk a little bit about this so we get a good understanding. I believe communion is something that you take when you need it. You can't depend on the church to tell you you need communion every first Sunday and, and make that, uh, or Catholics have it, every Mass. You know, every time you get together in the Catholic you can take it every day in the Catholic Church. There's no set time frequency because Jesus said as often as you do it or whenever you do it, it has to be done with significance and it has to be done with purpose. What is the purpose that we're receiving communion? You know, people, you know, take it and, and, you know, a whole church takes communion and half of them aren't saved. Well, what does that, does it have any significance to the unsaved person? You understand what I'm saying? Examine yourself. Uh, do you examine yourself and understand what you're examining yourself for? So there are many, many things, but this communion significant because you see it popping up over and over again, especially in the New Testament. Here it is in the book of Luke. This is after Jesus' resurrection. So it's a sacrament that goes from Old Testament over into New. It's the same thing. Okay, Before he died, he broke bread with his disciples, bread and wine. This take in remembrance of me as often as you do that. And then you see it over in the epistles. So it's a carryover sacrament. Now why? Why is it? And I believe it's because we need a revelation of God. That's the only thing that's going to take you from point A to point B is Jesus has to personally reveal, unveil a certain truth to you before you can put that together in your life and move forward. It's very essential to us that we keep communion with God. Communion also means fellowship. It's not just the sacrament, but it's a fellowship with God. And so there are some things, elements in the communion process that allow you to have unhindered fellowship with God. There's no such thing as you can't get an answer. There's no such thing as you can't break through on this, especially if it's something that's promised to you. And communion is the place where you meet him because these men were changed. After Jesus revealed himself, their eyes were opened. He disappeared. His job was done. He didn't need to fellowship with them anymore. It's just like when we get a revelation of Christ, you get a quickening on the inside of you sometimes, and you say, well, that's what that is, and shoot, it's gone, just like that. And so what God wants to do is deposit part of himself into us through the vehicle of communion. So in, in we'll finish this up. He said, he took bread and broke it, gave thanks, began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open. They recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Why? Because your comforter is now the Holy Spirit. So you don't need Jesus there physically, bodily, no more. In fact, there's a scripture that says, no man shall hereby know him after the flesh. Amen? So he is known to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And they asked each other, now here we go, you know, something told me that might be him. Something told me, like, like we do when the Holy Spirit's speaking to us. Something told me to do so and so, even though we know God. 
we still use that phrase. I hear Christians say it all the time. Something told me. Yeah, it was God speaking to you and trying to get your attention, but you didn't recognize him as God. See what I'm saying? You didn't follow through like you should. Where was your faith hiding when that was spoken to you? Many times we're nervous about something or we or we miss it. You know, like God will tell you, uh, you know, go to this store and and pick up something and then you'll find out later that's where your blessing was he says something told me to do that see what happened when something was talking to you is you weren't in the spirit to know that that was god talking to you if you stay in the spirit he's talking to us all the time he really is trying to get our attention trying to get us to go this way and, and not that way trying to get us to stop and pick up this blessing right here Instead of skipping over that, like we always do, go about our normal routine, and there's nothing interesting about your normal routine anyway. You always wish it was different. He's trying to make it different, and we don't listen to him. We don't recognize him. He says, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked to us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Well, they were reflecting on the old Jesus. He probably, they probably listened to his sermons many times, and their hearts burned. Goosebumps isn't a revelation. Amen? Heart burning is not a revelation. Amen? That's a sign, but it's not revelation. So they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those that were assembled together. It's true. The Lord's risen and appeared to them, and so now they are believers. They've had a revelation of God. So they are now believers. Now, how does Jesus deal with us in revealing himself to us? How does he reveal himself to us as New Testament Christians? <coughs> we don't recognize him until he reveals himself. He won't reveal himself unless we seek and we go beyond curiosity. You know how sometimes you can tell a sinner that God wants to bless them, and they'll say something. Well, tell them to help me win the lottery. I've had people say stupid stuff to me like that. See, God's not going to respond to that because that's not heartfelt. But see, when that same person that flipped you off talking about the lottery gets sick and start crying for help, then that's when they get sincere. You know, he responds to sincere seeking. That's all I'm trying to get you to see. And many times we're not sincere. They'll, we'll say something, boy, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I would know this or I wish I could get it. That's not really sincere. It's just something off the top of your head. God can't respond to that. But he will respond to our sincere seeking. And if we we get our first no answer he'll and we persist, because we know that he's promised that to us. We know that it's in the scriptures. You know what I'm saying? Then we start to draw closer to him and we can get a proper uh, revelation of him. So Jesus lives in us, but he takes on other forms in the earth to allow us to get a revelation of him. So the two forms that, that I'll talk about, and probably others, I, I just nothing came to my mind uh, when I was studying this, but the two forms he comes to us in, one is communion, and we spoke a little bit about that. We'll talk a little bit more. And the other one is in the hurting, the dying, the suffering, the least of these. 
those are two places where Jesus comes. He reveals himself to humanity now in those forms. So in 2 Corinthians 5, it's where our communion scripture is, the one that we use generally when we minister communion. Second Corinthians five and verse start in verse thirteen. Uh, no, verse fourteen. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from the worldly point of view, or no, uh, no man after the flesh. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. So a revelation of the earthly Jesus is not what we seek in this life you can talk to somebody and they know all the facts about jesus in fact he probably is the best known person in the world yet today everybody knows he was born of a virgin everybody knows he died for the sins of mankind but that will not get you saved you have to have a personal revelation of him head knowledge won't save anybody because we can all know facts we can all know data but the Bible says we're not to know him after the flesh anymore. In fact, we're not supposed to know each other after the flesh. I'm not supposed to be moved by your, your uh, things that you do that irritate me and vice versa. We're not to know each other that way. Go in deeper and see if you can really know who I am. You got me? Because God will reveal to all of us who we, he'll, he'll let you see each other the way he sees you. You don't have to conjure up some kind of false sympathy for somebody or fake pity for people. Just ask God to give you a revelation of Christ in that individual, and you'll be all the richer for it, totally richer for it. So we're not to know each other or anybody after the flesh. In 1 Corinthians 11, that's our communion scripture. You'll flip back there. In verse 20, I think it is. Have in verse 20. 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. So Paul's talking about how they conduct themselves in the church services. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, the other gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat in and drink? And now they were abusing the Lord's Supper. And it's easy to do that. You introduce wine into a church service, and you might have a good time and uh, two good times. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, that's why most churches use 
grape juice and not really wine, though some churches give you wine. Understand what I'm saying? <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't advise it. I knew a woman that uh, worked, uh, had her own ministry here, and she believed in having real wine. And I told her, I said, honey, I used to be an alcoholic. I can't drink that. She said, oh, well, you don't have to. You know, we can, you know, you can. But I'm thinking to myself, uh, me and probably half the people in here got a problem with <laughs> used to. Well, that's your old man. Your new man don't get drunk. Listen, you give me enough wine and you have problems on your own. <laughs> you might get sold out your own house. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Don't do that stuff. The Bible also says don't tempt. If you And don't use your strength in front of a brother's weakness. You know, and I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. But whatever. So anyway, anyhow, but <laughs> she took it out the refrigerator like it's been opened before. I said, oh, here we go. We got the family wine. <laughs> so I was thinking about Frazier and his brother Niles. You know, they're so haughty and pretentious. And uh, there was a, a lady their dad was dating. And she was real loud and bawdy, and we'd meet at a bar and stuff, and she'd come in all loud, boys, how you doing? And they just, you know, like with a thumb and a forefinger, hey, look, Marsha Mason played that person. She's real effervescent and bubbly and and, and goofy. And uh, she said, oh, I bought you guys some wine. And they looked at it, and they said, oh, and a little box to keep (laughs) it. You know how that the Italian big thing of con- uh, dinner wine comes? What a cute little box to <laughs> keep it in. And they hated it. Because, you know, their wine has to have a cork and a name and a vintage and a year and all that. <laughs> you need a corkscrew with this. It's all screw top and a little contact carton to put it in. You know, like that. But that that's just an aside. Okay, so we've got to get back to our word. But they were really abusing the Lord's Supper. And like I say, it's easy to do because it, it it's a different type of thing that generally goes on in a service. Uh, anything that's out of the norm or tradition or ordinary, we think of a service as being something that where you come and you preach and people listen. But this is something where you have to take in some physical elements, and, and that's what throws people off sometimes. And so Paul was really correcting how they were abusing the Lord's Supper. And he says, when he said, For this I received, verse 23, from the Lord that I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Some translations say broken for you. Amen. Do this in remembrance of me. Well, this one doesn't say broken because he was breaking it at the same time. You got me? So for demonstration, you leave the word out. But it was broken for us. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way. After supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whosoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning 
against the body and blood of the Lord. And this is why you don't give communion every day. This is why you don't abuse it with frequency. You do it as you are led and as you understand that there is a work God wants to do in each and every person there. Now that is my understanding of it. You are not limited to communion in the church. You may take communion yourself if you understand what you're doing and have a need for it. And that's why many people don't do it or they wait for the church or they get to church and, oh, y'all don't have communion every once the first day? No, go down the street. If You know what I'm saying. We can cause mark you absent every first if that's what you want. But w- I, I refuse to do it in a ritual fashion. I refuse to do it without significance and without meaning. Now, we can add meaning to it if we decide we want to do it every month, but I would prefer to let God speak to me that you need to serve communion with this that you're sharing with people because I want to do a work in them. Remember our meetings we would have and when we have conferences where God would want to deliver us of certain things. And the message was to deliver people. He said, and I will meet them at the communion table and complete this work in them. By instruction, I try to do these things. Same things with our foot washings, with the the meetings we used to have where we would do the, the substitutionary repentance and stuff like that. And God would tell us to wash one another's feet. Humble yourselves to one another. Break those stiffnesses you have against. We started breaking racism off people and started breaking old generational curses off of people and, and divorce and all of those things. You know, people got free and started being able to, you know, like there were some people that one week they wanted to get back together with the spouse, the next week they hated them. Well, they came to an understanding of what they wanted in their hearts to do. So these things are powerful and effective. If they're done with revelation, they've done it in response and obedience to the Spirit of God. So, he says here, his body is broken for us, which means we live healed. Do you believe that? He says, do this in remembrance of not me hanging there and feel sorry for me. Do it remembering that I've done this for you. Remember, when you take communion, oh, yeah, Jesus, you, your body was broken for me. If you have a hard time getting healed, take communion and understand that, God, when I take this, I am remembering and celebrating the fact that your body was broken for me. Now, most of these things will move if you get in the Word. Now, everybody, we, you can move a headache with the Word. You can move a, move a pain with the Word. But some things, if they linger... I wouldn't tell you not to receive communion. Do it. And let put yourself in remembrance of the fact that Jesus' body was broken for me. And, Lord, I want to leave my broken body right here at this table and receive your resurrected body. Receive your whole body. Receive your total body. Your body is whole and sound and put together properly. And that's my portion. And I believe I receive it when I have this. You got me? So these things are very, very powerful if you use them the right way. 
Now, why do sometimes people don't have it as a ritual? For this reason. He says here, make sure you don't take it unworthily. So there are people who just don't understand it. If you don't have a couple of hours to explain to them all that there is in communion, they won't get it. Some people are hard-hearted, don't want to repent. They'll never admit anything's wrong with them. So you leave them alone. You know what I'm saying? Just, <laughs> just, just don't bug people a whole lot to compel them to come clean before God. And many people don't want to do it. They want to be right more than they want anything. And, and it is unfortunate. But if you're at that place where you don't care about being right, you just want to be delivered, you want to be healed, you want to be free, you want to be just then go for it. But take it worthily. And what that means is that you have to discern the body of Christ. You have to see that it was broken for you. You have to see that it's resurrected whole right now. You have to dis, dis, decease, <laughs> cease and desist judging his body, other Christians, which means you have to walk in forgiveness. That's, that's a given right there. So when you examine yourself, you examine your heart. God, show me. If I have something against somebody, I want to let it go. Please forgive me for hating my brother. Please forgive me for not forgiving my brother. Please forgive me for that. And I want that cleansing. To c- I want the wholeness of your soul to come into my soul. I want the mind of Christ. That's my rightful inheritance. I, that's my inheritance. I want to walk in that. And I'm not going to hinder it anymore. I'm not going to be slow to believe. I'm going to be quick to believe that you've done a work in me and it's complete because of I'm, I'm remembering that you did this for me. I'm remembering I'm not a sinner anymore. I'm remembering I'm not a beggar anymore. I'm remembering that you took all of that curse for me. I'm remembering that. When you remember something, it becomes vivid and alive on the inside of you. It's not just something to reminisce and feel romantic about, but it's it's a remembrance is is you're making it come alive. That's what it is. It's the living Christ doing a work in you because of what he suffered in your place. And so we have to understand that God wants us to remember him. When you get into this place where you you really need to get over these things, you you spend enough time in jail. You know what I'm saying? You want to get out of jail. You gotta you gotta put yourself in remembrance. Go to the Word. Go c- to the communion table. Look for what you need in the Word of God and say, God, I'm gonna sit down and commune with you and leave this nonsense here and pick up Christ and go out of here healed, whole, well, sound, confident. That if my healing is an instant, it's coming. I will receive it. Amen. I believe I received and I will have. Mm. So we have to call call to mind his crucified body. It was an offering for our sin. When we understand that, we remember that we are forgiven. Our sins are paid for. And we're entitled to a new life because your sins are paid for. Don't forget to remember the broken body. We don't have to suffer in our bodies any longer. Remember that. Don't just put up with pain. Don't just put up with, you know, uh, sometimes we keep remembering how much we hurt. You're to remember him, (laughs) what he did. Amen.
Remember what he did. Not remember what you're going through. We do not have to suffer in our bodies any longer. Our bodies are, the blood represents new life. We died with him to sin and raised up in righteousness. So Jesus offers newness, healing, repair at the communion table. He offers all these things. So we must renew the knowledge of his suffering in our place as a substitute and subsequent resurrection from death. Not just did he die for us, but he raised up whole. There's nothing wrong with him when he got out of that tomb. He wasn't limping. The only thing he had that you knew he was crucified was the scars. And the scars are necessary. That's a covenant marking that he remembers when he looks at his hands and he has compassion on us. And he reminds you by the Holy Spirit, oh, himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Amen? So when those scars are evident, he sends a message to you by the Holy Spirit that he took that for you. That's what the scars are for. Scars are a memorial and a permanent marker of the death, the most important work he ever did in his life was to die on that cross. And it's commemorated by his scars. Amen. It reaffirms our power over sin and death. His broken body does. If we receive the body and the blood of Jesus, it reaffirms that we are dead to sin, alive to righteousness, and healed. It's all in one package. So you're not alive to righteousness to no avail. You know, people say, I'm, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Well, show me something that it's produced for you. You know, that, that scripture is more for you than it is for me. You understand what I'm saying? People will, will hang on that as a scripture, a bunch of words, but have no rea re revelation or reality of it. What's that righteousness done for you lately? Oh, well, uh, well, get back in the Word so you can understand what it is you're talking about. Because it'll do you more good understanding it than just memorizing it and spitting it out at somebody. You know, you spit it out at the devil, and the devil's constantly bugging you. Well, what's your righteousness doing for you if it don't get the devil off of you? Amen? So it reaffirms our power over sin and death if we receive the body and the blood of Jesus. So you reaffirm your power over sin and death. That's why there are times where God will tell people uh, if they go visit the sick, take communion with you. And I've done that before. He'll say, you take some, some bread and wine with you, grape juice, whatever, and, and have communion with that person. I've done it. I don't do it often. I'll admit that. But on the times he says do it, that's what's called for. So under God's direction, I do these things. And so, uh, and, and people will remember and be healed. Amen. You minister the word to them, and, and they're healed. I remember uh, uh, Pastor Shirley's mother-in-law. Uh, she just passed away at 96. But when she was still in her 80s, she had, they put her in the hospital because she quit eating, and she said she couldn't swallow anything. And she had a little cup where she would spit in it all the time. And <laughs> it drove everybody crazy. 
And so the Lord told me, he said, go to see her. He said, I want you to minister to her. And so I took my little red Bible. It's small enough to take anywhere. And uh, she's Baptist. And they always have an answer for you. And so, <laughs> but I didn't let that stop me. God told me to go. Now, if he hadn't told me to go, I wouldn't have gone. You know, I don't contend with people. But uh, he told me to go. And uh, I was telling her, I said, well, I said, what are you going to do? I said, you going to let them keep you here? I said, you going to eat and go home? And she said, well, let me show you that I can't swallow. I can't breathe. I can't. I said, okay. I said, all right, baby. I said, now God wants to heal you. I said, are you ready? She said, I'm ready. And so we read um, uh, from uh, Matthew chapter 8 where all the good healing stories are. And so I told her, I said, well, if you're ready, I said, ready. And so I just read the scripture to her, and as we fin and I prayed for her. And I asked her if she was ready. I laid hands on her and prayed for her. At that time, a young lady came in to give her a swallowing test where they uh, uh, determine if there's something physiologically wrong that you cannot swallow physically. Or in and she said, well, she passed the swallowing test. And I looked at her. I said, now you see that? I said, Jesus done healed you already. And so I called Pastor Shirley and told her, I said, you call Larry and tell him his mother is eating when she's coming out of the hospital. Well, she didn't really eat for another couple of days, but she did eat. And she did come out of the hospital. And she lived almost another 10 years. Amen. So you, you have to understand that these things are necessary. You know, God says take communion, take communion. But that was one of the times he didn't tell me to do that. So I didn't say, oh, let me get my gear together. What can I put in my bag of tricks? You know, and it's not a bag of tricks, folks. He equips us for every good work. So we have to leave the communion table with a fresh revelation of Jesus in whatever form we need to know it. He's going to tell you something about himself that is going to help you. He's going to open up understanding of his word to you. But you must examine yourself. Look at yourself. God, what do I need? I'm in tough shape here. God, I don't do this right, that right, the other right. Just talk to him. Tell him what you need. Tell him what you think is, is amiss. And don't say, I can't think of nothing. Just leave the table. If that's the case, you don't need this. Got me? And see, this is what happens when you give mass communion to everybody. People get to the place where they can't think of nothing. <laughs> They're standing between them and God. Huh? Lord, if nothing else, I got a stack of bills at home. I keep saying I'm going to get them paid, and I never follow up on my word. Can you help me? Amen? I don't care what it is. It's a, it's a roadblock to your, your peace, your confidence, your faith, and your help. So you need to get them roadblocks out of the way and com communion will do it. You imagine, you ima examine yourself in light with the Holy Ghost and you'll find out some things. You thought they were small. You laugh at them and you keep going. But they could be major hindrances <laughs> to what God wants to do. You don't know what plan he has for you. So Jesus, the healer and deliverer, will meet you at the communion table in his wholeness and make you whole. That's when you partake of his life. When you drink the wine, that represents his blood, the blood of the new covenant that washes you, cleanses you, and restores you. 
and his broken body means that you can leave with a whole body and a whole soul and a clean spirit. Everything's clean and brand new. And a revelation of who he is to help in that need that you have. So we leave the table whole and complete, whatever form we need to know him. That's why it's good not to abuse communion. If you use it for the right reason, you reserve it for the times where you know you really need to meet with God, and he'll meet you every single time. So he reappears to us in another form in this life as well. One of the forms he meets with us is in broken humanity. Turn to Matthew chapter 25. You'll see what his what his command is to us. Matthew 25, drop down to verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another. Now, something that, that is of this magnitude is very important for us to see. The, the thing that gets us sometimes is if it's not anything to do with eat, drink, and wear, we're not that interested. He's talking about when he comes at the end of the age, when he comes in his glory. Well, that come on, Jesus. Now, I, I need some bills paid before we get down that road so we don't listen to this stuff as much. That's all I'm saying. But he's saying at the end, you will be judged based on this thing right here. So this has to do with your life and how you live it every day. Even though he summed it up at the end of the age is when he's going to deal with it. So thank God we have an opportunity to participate in this while we're living. So it is definitely for current and for every day. And he says, uh, let me see. Then the king, oh, he says here, all the nations, verse 32, will be gathered before him. He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. Uh-oh. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king, left is always uh, this, the side of disfavor or judgment. The king, right is always the side of favor or blessing. The king will say to those in his on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Why? I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison. You came to visit me. The righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you? And he says, I came to you in another form. He says, when you did it to the stranger and, and to the least of them, amen, that's when you did it unto me. He says, when did we see you, stranger, and, and invite you in, etc.? The king will reply, truly tell you, whenever you did it to one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, people are God's family, folks. 
you know, you remember that three or four times and, and you start thinking differently <laughs> about people, you know, when you're treating them better, or in other words. But, but this is something we have to really remember. This is why you go out of your way to help people. This is why you think about when you have extra, you think about the neighbor that might be short on their bills or something like that. Or this is why we go and pick up Panera bread. It's no joy to have to haul all that bread and sort it out because you see how big a job it is. But it's amazing we never waste any of it. Somebody is always there to receive it. I don't care if it's a neighbor. I started taking it to the groomer. I noticed one time she was eating a Panera bagel while she was waiting on me and Coco to show up. She was just finishing her. And I said, you like them things? She said, yeah. I said, what kind? She said, really? I like these cheese ones. I said, well, we distribute Panera bread. I said, to be honest with you, once our freezer is full, I said, I have a hard time finding people to give it to, which is true. I said, can I bring you some of She said, oh, sure. Well, she lives in the back apartment over the garage. She's got her husband's family living in the front house, and then adjacent to them is another neighbor. That's three families that can be blessed. And she said, there was so much of it, I just gave it to my, my people up in the front. I said, well, I'm glad of that. I said, because I hate, and every time I bring it, she never tells me not to bring it. She never tells me it's too much. So, you know, you don't know people's condition. Now, I don't have to know if she's broke or if she's got money. But I just know the leading of God, you know. And she'll find, it'll find its way to people who have need. You're not to, to judge whether people need something or not. You just need to obey the Holy Spirit. There are people that don't need, and they're trying to rip Christians and churches off. But I just, you know, I'd rather be an error on the side of generosity. You know what I'm saying? In case they do have a need, they need Jesus, that's for sure. So Jesus reappears in this life in another form so that not only is he revealed to us at the communion table, but he comes to us in the form of the least of them. So we need to look for people and look to Jesus in people. Broken humanity is the way he reveals himself to us now. So there are broken people everywhere. Begin in your household. Jesus is there in your family members, in your relatives. Sometimes it's the, the child that gives you the most back talk. One day, if you ask God, he'll show you himself in that person. He'll show you their brokenness. He'll show you their insecurity. He'll show you their heartbreak, their discouragement with life. He'll show you truth instead of that that lippy, brazen, abrasive facade, Jesus will take you behind the scenes and he'll say, this is how I see this person. And when you help this person, you, you're helping me. You see me. So people are fearful sometimes, and that's why they're, they're acting out. You know? Sometimes you're in the workplace, a person who gives you grief or tries to intimidate you. Suddenly, they're going to be transformed into Jesus in another form, and your heart will break for them because you'll see them as they really are. Jesus is in the form of broken humanity now. You won't see Jesus like people depict him in the pictures and stuff in the movies, but you'll see that broken person, and you'll see how Jesus 
receive them and that's humanity. Every human being is is made in the image of God and that's how Jesus comes to us. So I'm going to read you a couple of things I wanted to read you. How much time do I have, Miss Lana? Oh, okay, that's good. I'll start from the beginning. Uh, this is uh, my girl, Abby Teresa, loving Jesus. Amen. <laughs> that's my girl, my own girl. But uh, anyway, this these are excerpts from her her uh, teaching. She said, "The greatness of the poor is something beautiful. The greatness of the poor." Amen. Months ago in New York, one of our AIDS patients called me and said, I want to tell you something very private because you are my friend. When my headache comes becomes unbearable, this disease gives terrible headaches. I compare it with the pain Jesus must have had with the crown of thorns. When the back when the pain moves to my back, I compare it with the pain Jesus had to bear when they whipped him. When my hands ache, I compare it with the pain Jesus felt when they crucified him. There you have an example of the greatness of love in the love of this young man, the victim of such a terrible disease. He had no hope of surviving, and yet see how he loved. He found the courage and strength to pray to Jesus and share his suffering with Christ himself. There was no sign of sadness or distress on his face. He was radiating peace and joy. He only asked me, please take me home. They called our house home. I brought him to our home and took him to Jesus in the chapel. I had never had the chance of seeing anybody speak to Jesus on the cross as I saw that sick young man speak to Christ. I believe there was a tender conversation between Jesus and him. After three days, that young man died. He had been in jail for terrible crimes, yet he died with a purified heart. See the tenderness of God taking him out of there and giving that young man the joy of belonging only to him. See also the greatness of the poor. <coughs> okay, this one is called To Control Jesus. It is good for us to focus on the Lord and ask ourselves, do I really love Jesus like that? Do I really accept the joy of loving by sharing in his passion? Because even today, Jesus is looking for somebody to console and comfort him. You remember what happened in Gethsemane. Jesus was longing for somebody to share in his agony. The same thing happens in our lives. Can he share his sorrow with us? Are you there to comfort you, him? He comes to you in the hungry. He comes to you in the naked. He comes to you in the lonely. He comes to you in the drunkard. He comes to you in the prostitute, in the street person. He may come to you in the lonely father or mother or sister or brother in your own family. Are you willing to share the joy of his love with them? That is why we need the communion table. To share the joy of loving Jesus. Amen. That is why we need a deep life of prayer. Okay. So I'll share this other one with you. Okay. The distressing disguise of Jesus in the poor. And this is what her, her ministry was based on. 
when she served these people, she was actually ministering to the Lord. And she felt her life was much richer for it, you know, than it would have been doing anything else. She said, this is why the crippled and blind, the lepers, the unwanted, and the unloved are our brothers and sisters. See the goodness of God. It was not enough for him to feed us to make himself one of us. He had to satisfy his own hunger for us. So he makes himself the hungry one. He makes himself the naked one. He makes himself the homeless one. Now what she's saying here is that Jesus is so hungry for fellowship with humanity that he makes himself needy so that we can respond to him. Not wealthy, needy. And he said, whatever you did for the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. <coughs> for I was hungry and you gave me to eat. Jesus, in the least of his brethren, is not only hungry for a piece of bread, but hungry for love. To be known. To be taken into account. He is not only lacking a piece of clothing. He is stripped of human dignity. Very often through injustice, we take human dignity away from the poor. Or the poor may have been robbed of chastity, purity of soul or body. Jesus is the homeless one. He is not only lacking a house made of bricks or wood. He is suffering the terrible loneliness of being homeless. A more terrifying disease than leprosy, tuberculosis, AIDS, or any other disease a human body can bear. He says homelessness is worse than any of those. These, this, the disease of being unloved and unwanted, of having no one to call your own, is a very great poverty and a very harmful disease in our days. To make sure that we understand what he says, Jesus is going to judge us on love. He is going to judge us on our response to the very beautiful call, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. Come, the blessed of my father. Or, I was hungry and you did not give me to eat. Go, I don't know you. You and I will have to face that one day, but it is not necessary for us to be afraid of Jesus. Let us this be our response today. I really understand the communion. If we really enter into our lives on Jesus' body and blood, if we nourish ourselves with the bread of communion, it will be easy for us to see Christ in the hungry one next door. Now, they felt that the what they call Eucharist or, or uh, bread and wine communion transformed them in such a way that they were open, they opened their eyes to see Christ in another form and easily minister to the sick, the hurting, and the dying. He said it would be easy for us to see Christ in that hungry one next door, the one lying in the gutter, the alcoholic man we shun, or our husband or wife, or our restless child. For in them we recognize the distressing disguises of the poor, and that is Jesus in our midst. Do we recognize Christ in a distressing disguise? Right in my home, in my the very heart of my family. There is no need for me to even leave the house. 
What about the elderly? My own father, mother, do I recognize Jesus in them? Do they seem like a burden as they grow older? Am I capable of bearing their pain? Am I capable of smiling at them? Are they special to me? I remember one of our sisters who had just graduated from the university. She came from a well-to-do family that lived outside of India. According to our rule, the very next day after joining our society, the postulants must go to the home for the dying destitutes in Calcutta. Before this sister went, I told her, you saw the priest during Mass with what love, with what delicate care he touched the body of Christ. Make sure you do the same thing when you get to the home because Jesus is there in a distressing disguise. So she went, and after three hours she came back. That girl from the university, who had seen and understood so many things, came to my room with such a beautiful smile on her face. She said, for three hours I've been touching the body of Christ. And I said, what do you do? What happened? She said, they brought a man from the street who had fallen into a drain and had been there for some time. He was covered with maggots and dirt and wounds. And though I found it very difficult, I cleaned him, and I knew I was touching the body of Christ. She knew. How do we know? Do we recognize Jesus under the appearance of bread? If we recognize him under the appearance of bread, we will have no difficulty recognizing him in the disguise of the suffering poor and the suffering in our family and our own community. It was always so much easier for us to be very kind to the people outside our own circle than to be full of smiles and full of love to those in our own homes. For me, that means being kind to my own sisters. Amen? So it, it's, it is true. There is a revelation of Christ in distressed humanity. Not in rich, well-fed. <laughs> I mean, you can see Christ in anybody, but you know what I'm saying. He says he comes to us in another form, and he expects us to recognize his body. Amen? I remember that testimony. It was a woman, I've, I'm sure I've shared it before, but it bears sharing because this woman felt that she was supposed to be a minister and uh, she was supposed to be a preacher, but her church wouldn't let her. And she said the church had suffered a fire one year and they moved all of the books from the church library into her home till they rebuilt the church. Well, it took them several years. And she said, well, I thought to myself, I might as well read these books, and then they'll know that I have enough knowledge, and they'll want to ordain me. She read the books. They still wouldn't ordain her. Over the years, she grew very bitter and very angry till she got to the place where she was dying of cancer. Bitterness enough to give this will kill you, folks. It, it'll hurt you. You know, uh, 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 unforgiveness will cripple you. You know what I'm saying? It'll cause you pain, deep pain. And arthritis is always, bursitis, all those joint diseases are associated with bitterness. Uh, I've prayed for people and cast that thing out, and they, mm, I feel so much better. You always feel better when you get rid of junk. But anyway, she was very bitter, and, and she died in the hospital one night. And she said she stood before the Lord, and she said he opened a, sh a shoot and all of her whole life fell through a sieve, a sifter. 
And she said, everything fell through except this one little orphan boy that she had adopted. And he said, she said, you mean that's all that time I was working in the church and did this? He said, I told you, when you did it unto the least of them, you have done it unto me. And she begged, she said, Lord, can you give me another chance? She said, if you give me another chance, she said, I will do whatever you tell me to do. Long story short, he sent her to a woman's farm somewhere up here in Michigan. And the woman took care of her. She was a praying woman. She took care of her, and she ministered to her. And she said one night, she told her, she said, I've been fasting and praying. She said she had farm animals. She didn't feed them. She didn't feed the dog or the cat. Everybody fasted. Nothing broke. She said, you know what you got to do. She said, you got to forgive those people. That's real hard because none of this is going to get better until you do that. And that's what she did. That woman, when she gave her testimony, she was in her 80s. She said, since that time, God healed her. She had been to 60 nations preaching the gospel, not taking a penny. No church supported her. No push. She found out finally what she needed to do to obey God, and that is obey God and quit being angry at man. You understand what I'm saying? That kind of nonsense can get you in so much hurt, pain, and trouble. But I'm telling you, if you get a, she had a revelation of Christ that time. She saw him, and she saw what her life was, and she made that decision to turn it around and never went back again. So we need a revelation of Christ, folks. You need it badly. I need it badly. I seek to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings and in the power of his resurrection. You can't have one without the other. Amen. Father, we thank you for allowing us to understand your word and bringing us into a place of revelation of you and understanding of you. We thank you, Lord, for blessing us with these truths. We can apply them. It's not, it's not out of our range to, to accept and obey these things. So we obey them before you, Lord, and we thank you for giving us insight, helping us. These things help us so much, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. Anybody need prayer? Come on up. Get